Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Lord, let that be our prayer this morning. In all that we do, may we honor you. You are everything to us, Lord. You're the lodestar. You're our treasure. You're our refuge. You're our strength. You're everything to us, Lord. Help us realize that more and more, that without you, we, would, we wouldn't even be. So, Lord, help us to honor you with our lives. And, Lord, now as we open your word, we pray that you would help us to hear. We, we recognize we need your Holy Spirit's help to, to implant the word in our hearts, to prepare our hearts to receive it, and then to water it and nurture it and let it make, produce fruit in us. So, Lord, help us hear. Be with those who couldn't be with us this morning. We pray you'd watch over and bless them, those that are away from us. And we pray for Ricky as, as he goes back to work in Pennsylvania. Give him a safe trip back. I, I pray that you would uh, direct them to uh, a church that really uh, can bless them and where they can be a blessing. And he's such a, he and Vicky are such a blessing here. Bless them, Lord. And Lord, now... Help our hearts and minds to be still and ready to receive your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And children can be dismissed for Children's Church. And today we are in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Um, if you're a guest with us, we just work our way through scripture. And you happen to have joined us as we're in the letter to the Corinthians and at chapter 6. And this is a, um, we've, we've been in a kind of tough passages because uh, chapters, well, from the very beginning, Paul's addressing all the problems. So we're looking at all these problems that the Corinthian church has. And it's good um, that he wrote down, what do we do in these situations? What should we expect? What can we put up with and what can we not put up with? What things need to be addressed quickly? And how do we deal with them? And so today, um, you've come at this point in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11, where Paul's going to address the fact that these uh, people within the church were going to the civil government and suing each other in the civil court. And so he's going to deal with that. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle dispute between brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? 
do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So Paul's letter is moving from he's, uh, the fact that he's been dealing with the factions that are in the church and the immoral brother we talked about last week uh, as uh, signs of their spiritual immaturity. But now um, he's, he's dealing with the way in which they, they need to handle material disputes. If someone... Um, uh, defraud somebody out of money or time or labor or whatever. How do you deal with that in the church? Um, we would naturally want to use someone in the church when we, when we have business to do or if, if there's someone that has a talent that we know of, we naturally want to use those within the church body. But sometimes there are un, unspoken expectations or misunderstandings and sometimes there's outright abuse. The differences can be financial or they can be unmet expectations. And in most cases, each side is sure that they're right. So the passage deals specifically with going to the civil courts against a fellow believer. And it, and it gives us principles of how we should handle disputes like that within the church family. It's these disputes that drive some people away from being part of the body of Christ. You know, they see some, some injustice go on and they say, well, if they let that happen, then I'm just, uh, I don't want to be a part of that. The closer we are to people, the deeper uh, the emotional wounds that can result. We don't expect those we love and trust to treat us unfairly, but it's true with any gathering of people whether it's family, or friends, or, or a club. People are people. The church, however, should learn to resolve differences in love and gentleness, seeking God's will in every situation. This is to not to say that there are not cases when authorities are to be involved, if there's criminal activity or such as embezzlement or sexual misconduct of an illegal nature or abuse, civil authorities need to be contacted. Verse 1 says again, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? We're supposed to be a spiritual family who love the Lord with all our hearts and who love one another. How then can we go to court against a brother? What does that say to the world? And how is the world going to see any difference in us if we act just like them? That's why Paul uses the word dare here. Do we dare do this? He's asking how they can have the audacity to do such a thing. God views us one way, but we choose to reshape our identities around the things that please and comfort and excite us. There's a crisis of identity. It's a case of gospel amnesia. 
which leads us to acting like non-saints, like the unrighteous. When the world sees that kind of behavior, they conclude that the church really doesn't have anything to offer. Yeah, they talk about it, but they act differently. Jewish communities have always judged their own affairs because their law is the Torah. Our law, Galatians 5.14 says, is love. And in this passage, Paul's telling us the church should judge between fellow believers. The Qumran community and Jews in general had their own courts even when they were in Roman and Greek cities. So why not follow Matthew 18? First, you go to the one who's offended you alone, just you, without telling anyone, and you try to resolve the issue. This is Jesus' instruction to us. Secondly, if the person will not hear you, take another person as a witness, preferably someone who that person respects. If the person still won't listen, then take it to the church elders. And most of these disputes that Paul's talking about in this passage are really trivial, material things. They happen when we're too focused on this world and not on things above. I've, I've witnessed believers go different ways so that they wouldn't have to compromise or agree to differ and love one another. It's really sad. We insist on having our own way to our own detriment. As mentioned in the last few weeks' sermons, we just look for another church because we weren't really committed to the people there that we worshiped with anyway. The persons who leave will be the same with the next church that they attend, a lack of commitment. Where is the spirit of Jesus who prefers others above himself? If his spirit is in us, certainly we can die to ourselves and take the loss for the sake of unity. Jesus gave up heaven and submitted to abuse and a torturous death that we might be one. Can't we give up our rights to see his wishes fulfilled? If we're indeed saints, then why do we act like the world? That doesn't mean that we become a doormat, but rather that we submit to the decision of the elders after they've prayerfully considered the matter. Humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he can exalt us in due time. As the following verses point out, one day we will judge the world and angels, presumably the fallen ones. So why would we let the worldly judge decide trivial matters within the church? Do we have such a lack of trust in one another that we would prefer a secular judge? And what kind of a message does that give to the world around us? Verse two, or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So this is the third time that Paul's used uh, this, do you not know? He'll ask it six times in this chapter. The truths we know about the future kingdom should affect our behavior today. When we possess the coming kingdom, we will judge the world 
because that's our certain future, why shouldn't we be the ones to help fellow believers resolve differences? Do you not know, number four, ask is if they didn't know that they will judge angels because the psalm says we are for only for a little time lower than the angels. How much more than the earthly matters? This was a typical rabbinical way of, of making an argument. If this great thing, then how much more this lesser thing? Verse four, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Since God has chosen those the world despises, call on one of them to judge the matter. Paul again uses irony to make the contrast even clearer. Anyone in the church would be better than a secular judge. So why would we turn to them to settle a dispute? The NIV and a few other translations take the original Greek here and render it as a command that when a case arises, we should pick someone of little account in the church to judge. I won't get into the Greek as to why there's different translations, but if that is the correct rendering, then Paul's using sarcasm. In other words, even the least mature believer would be better than a civil judge. Verse five, I say this to your shame. Can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between brothers. But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. How shameful that we would sink so low and be so like the world. Where are the elders among you that set yourselves up to be so wise and so sophisticated who will step in and help those brothers resolve their issues? Do we really think civil judges will be fairer or have greater wisdom? In the closing of this letter of the first, to the first Corinthians, uh, uh, Paul lists all these different people that he knows in the church of Corinth. I'll just I'll, I'll read to you a quote from another pastor. He says that Paul says in the end of the letter, I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that it's first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints that ye submit yourselves unto such. He goes on to mention Fortunatus and Achaeus, whose ministries were a benediction. And what about Lucius and Jason and Sassipater, who were Paul's own kinsmen? Or Tertius, who acted as Paul's personal secretary at times? Or Gaius, famous for his generosity? Or even Quartus, a brother? Evidently, Paul's being sarcastic when he challenges the Corinthians, who were unable to find one man capable of arbitrating between the disputing parties because he, at the end of the letter, named a dozen. Disputes are often from misunderstandings that fester and turn into animosity. So finding common ground and areas of compromise on the demands that are being made can usually restore unity. When I first came to this church 20 years ago, um, the church was in the midst of, um, of conflict over the firing of the previous pastor. So I got both sides together. They sat down at a table, each side on opposite sides of the table. And I asked them 
to think how Jesus would want them to resolve their differences. And I challenged them with Jesus' to command that if we do not forgive others, we will not be forgiven. But sadly, nothing made any difference. They didn't go to court, but some who were involved left the fellowship. It gets back to the issue in last week's sermon. Many church members just don't have a commitment to the others in the body of Christ. They don't see themselves as a family who needs one another. It's easy to pick up and move down the street to another church. And sadly, it's too often the case that if they disagree with us, we don't mind them going. But that's not the attitude of the early church. Paul's greeting at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 2, was to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. People with that description are those who love one another, which is the main outward indication that we are indeed saints. 1 John 4.20 reads, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God who he has not seen. And love does no ill to his neighbor. That's Romans 13.10. How can we cause harm to our brother or sister in Christ? Verse 7 to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. We don't know what the dispute was about, but it is enough to know that a person was or claimed to be wrong and defrauded by his brother in Christ. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say what the issue is because it really doesn't matter what the issue is. This, this uh, contention and unwillingness to, to come to a common understanding was the problem. They're testifying that Christians don't walk the, the talk. In the last chapter, they, they wouldn't judge incest. But in this chapter, they took a trivial matter in front of the whole city. So no wonder was Paul was so concerned that his work was in vain. There are many churches that act in a similar way today. Paul's suggested response is very informative. He had asked, where are the elders and, and why haven't they stepped in? But when that doesn't happen, he addresses the victim and asks why he didn't just allow himself to be wronged or be defrauded. If it's a financial loss, is it worth putting a bad testimony out to the city? Jesus suggested something similar in Matthew 18. He asked the offended party to reach out to the offender because it's, it's the person who is wronged who must take the action to remedy the situation. The person who commits the wrong is either unaware or he's an immature believer or hasn't yet come to know Jesus. That means the one offended is usually the more spiritually mature and therefore they should be the one to go to the person and act to resolve the situation, either by going to them or talking to, and talking through it or by suffering the loss and forgiving the offender. 
Now, that doesn't sound fair to our carnal reasoning, and it isn't fair. But it is in the freedom wherewith Christ has set us free. He's our provider. He will deal with the offender. We only need to be concerned about the person's salvation. Jesus suffered great loss for our salvation. Can't we put up with these minor things for the sake of unity and possibly that person's salvation? So to make it even clearer why Paul objected to going to court, we need to understand the Corinthian legal system at that time and how it had little to do with right or wrong. It was more about who had a higher standing in society, who had the most influence. The courts were a way to beat up on those who had a lower standing in society. How could a Christian do this to his brother? Justice Anthony Scalia wrote, I think this passage, 1 Corinthians 6, has something to say about proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul is making two points, he writes. Paul says that the mediation of a mutual friend, such as a parish priest, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. I think we're too ready today to see vindication or vengeance through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. Good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, should be slow to sue. End of quote. Fraud is always wrong, but doing so while calling yourself a brother is doubly wrong. You know, when I, I was building my house, I tried to use Christian contractors. And um, my cement contractor um, claimed to be a prophet. And his business card had the little fish logo on it and everything. And so I thought, well, I can trust this guy. And so he did part of it, about one-tenth of it, and he got an advance for next part and never showed back up. And I thought about, should I turn him into the board of contractors? I weighed it back and forth, and time went by. The roofer actually helped me finish the concrete work, and, and eventually I just decided to let it go. And then about three or four months later, I heard he had a job where he had, it was, a, it was also a driveway, and he had ended up dumping the concrete in the driveway and leaving it in a giant pile. And, of course, then the board of contractors did go out after him. And since then, I've heard he passed away. Now, people may think that they get away with fraud, but God always balances the books, either in this life or the next, either with the blood of Jesus or with what we deserve. Verses 9 and 10, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul concludes the issue with a harsh warning to those who harm others within the body. It's not that they just get away with defrauding someone. The frightening conclusion if the, is if they continue in such a way of life, it may be to their eternal damnation. 
we should be more concerned about that than we are with what we may lose. You know, you can't be too bad for Jesus to save you. But once you're born again, life has a new direction, a new source, a new power. We are ashamed of the things we once did. Continuing in the old pattern unchanged is an indication that there is no conversion of the heart. The fruit our lives bear is the result of the life within. If the inner life is the flesh, you'll have carnal fruit. If it is of the spirit, you will have spiritual fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. By their fruits, you will know them, Jesus said. Paul gives us some clarification of behavior that, along with defrauding your brother, indicates a bad tree. Sexually immoral, such as is the case in the previous chapter. Idolaters, which means putting any object before God. Adulterers, you understand, already, nor men who practice homosexuality. You know, our, our culture is telling us that that's normal. And it may be normal for this fallen world, but it's not for those who are born above, from above, for those who will inherit the kingdom of God. All these sins seem natural to fallen man, and we shouldn't expect them to act otherwise. Our culture excuses sin as a natural inclination, but that doesn't make something right before God. God gives us boundaries for our good. We love the sinner and hate the sin, and we watch our own lives to see that we are not tempted. He goes on in verse 10 to add thieves. In other words, taking what God has given to someone else. The greedy, which the Bible also says is idolatry because we're putting that, those things before God. Drunkards, those whose lives are given over to drugs. Revilers, those who constantly speak evil of others. And swindlers, which are those who con people out of their money. If the friction in the church resulting in court cases was over someone defrauding someone else in the church, Paul's lumping such a person in with those who do the things that are indications that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's why in verse 7 he said they are already defeated. Satan had plucked up the seed that was sown so that they're not growing to produce fruit. They should have put the fear of God in that should have put the fear of God into those who were doing those things. Verse 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Paul's reminding them how the power of God took them out of those chains and gave them a new life. As someone has said, from the guttermost to the uttermost. It's not about who we were, but who we are now in Christ. Hallelujah. We were all, by nature, vessels of wrath, Ephesians 2, 1 tells us, but God, but grace, but love, but the word of God washed us clean of all that filth, sanctified us, which is to say he set us apart for his glory. We were justified just as if I'd never sinned. It's a term, you know, that's used for acquittal. 
He, uh, he's been addressing those who go to court before one another, but there's a higher court. It's the court of heaven. And we've been acquitted before God because Jesus' payment on our behalf and the work of the Spirit of God in our hearts. So if these behaviors are still in the lives of some individuals in the fellowship, they need the same transforming power that changed us, salvation and transformation, not condemnation. When the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. Jesus' nature and authority did all that for us in his life, death, and resurrection. The Holy Spirit is seeing to our daily transformation and salvation from this present evil age. It's not by virtue of our own resolve and effort that we become new creations in Christ. Salvation is imputed to us through the saving name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's implemented us in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The believer does not willingly or habitually disgrace the name of the Lord Jesus or distress the nature of the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we can suffer loss and yet know at the same time that we possess all things. And that's why we can forgive and move on in grace, in love, even in joy. We were once in the offender's shoes, but God predestined us. He called us. Or as our brother Ricky said, he drew us, irresistibly drew us, justified us, and glorified us. That's the liberty that is ours in Jesus. Glory to God. Amen? Amen. We're going to sing a closing song, and then I'll give a benediction. Let's stand and sing.